lucky few podcast listeners and friends. We had so many incredible conversations in 2023. And before we kick off a new season in 2024, we're going to be throwing it back to some of our very favorite episodes from last year as we get excited to hit a milestone. Y'all, this is the year that we will hit our 1 millionth download. We're so close. We're just a few thousand away. Listeners, we are looking forward to another amazing season of shouting worth and shifting narratives for people with Down syndrome from all of us here at the Lucky Few Podcast. Thank you for your support and enjoy this throwback episode. Let's get to it. All right, friends, welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast, where we are going to be shouting worth in order to shift narratives for people with Down syndrome. Today, we have two of our very favorite guests returning to chat about a very important topic. Dr. Brian Scottco and Dr. Noemi Spinazzi are here to discuss equity in healthcare for individuals with Down syndrome who are part of minority groups. We are so excited to hear from them. This is a really meaningful and important conversation. So stick around and welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. All right, before we hear from our guests, I'm going to read another review from one of you incredible listeners. This review comes from, quote, anonymous. This person says, I've listened to this podcast since the very beginning. I look forward to every episode. The three hosts bring such unique perspectives. I don't have children with Down syndrome. However, I am an educator, and this podcast has helped remold my educational philosophy. Appreciate the vulnerability you all bring as mamas, advocates, and podcast hosts. Anonymous, thank you so much for listening. Um, We love to know that people in the education space are listening to this podcast. It means so much to us. And if you are a listener and you have not left a review yet and you want to, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, do five stars, leave us a review, and then maybe we'll read that review here next week. We really appreciate the feedback. Uh, We love to know that we're all in this together with you. All right, friends, I am here today with the brilliant Dr. Brian Scottsco and the brilliant Dr. Noemi Spinazzi, who have both been on our show before. Dr. Scottco is a board-certified medical geneticist and the director of the Down Syndrome Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. He has a very long list of credentials, including graduating from Harvard, writing award-winning books, and perhaps most importantly, being a sibling to his sister who has Down Syndrome. We also have returning Dr. Spinazzi with us today. She is the medical director of Charlie's Clinic, a Down syndrome clinic in San Francisco, California, as well as a primary care physician and a professor. She also has a very long list of credentials. We're so grateful to have them and their expertise on the show today. Okay, so Dr. Brian Scottco and Dr. Noemi Spinazzi, Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. We're so happy to have both of you back. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes. Okay. Um, Dr. Spinazzi, tell us real quick for our listeners who are new to you where you're at, and then we can just hear, they can hear your voice and know who's who. Makes sense. 
Uh, my name is Noemi Spinazzi, and I'm the medical director of the Down Syndrome Clinic at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland, in California. In California, that's right. And then Dr. Scott Coe, how about you? Yes, I'm the director of the Down Syndrome Program at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Very cool. And both of you guys have been on the ep- on the podcast before, as we've mentioned. And at the end of this episode, friends, I'm going to go through the list of the episodes that they've been on with numbers, and we'll have links to all of that so you can go back and familiarize yourself even more so. But thank you both so much for being on and taking the time to share with us what you've been working on. So a few months ago, um, you guys had reached out to us to share about a big project that you've been working on that involves patients with Down syndrome who identify as Black, as well as patients, as well as parents of patients who primarily speak Spanish. Does that all sound accurate? Yes, I'm getting nods. Okay. Yes. Um, So then can you tell me and tell our listeners more about that project and what you've discovered? Let's just dive right in. Well, Heather, Dr. Spinazzi and myself have been so lucky to work with so many researchers and parents. We got a grant from the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, PCORI, which is a federal funder. And you know what we all know is the unfortunate reality is the majority of people with Down syndrome just don't have access to one of the specialty clinics like Dr. Spinazzi and I are so lucky to get to run. One of those own people is my own sister with Down syndrome who lives more than two hours away from her local Down syndrome clinic in Ohio. But we also know from research that this healthcare disparity is even worse for families who identify as being Black, African-American, or primarily Spanish-speaking. And it's an unfortunate reality that there are many barriers that these families face. But within our own Down syndrome community, there was never that deep dive into what are those barriers that families who identify as Black or primarily Spanish-speaking face? And can we understand those better in order to create tangible solutions? And that's what we were funded to do. And with some incredible parents and clinicians and experts, we wanted to gather data. And we did that in three ways. One is we interviewed primary care physicians around the country who worked with patients who were Black or Spanish-speaking and had Down syndrome. We also got focus groups together of families and parents who had that lived experience. And then we also had a national online survey, which were completed by more than 100 families to tell us about their experience. And our team then carefully stitched all those together in order to start to present a pilot data. And it's really to start this conversation about some of the disparities that exist. So together as a community, we could start to build solutions. I want to take us back a tiny bit and ask, how did you two get connected? I am the medical director of the Down Syndrome Clinic at Children's Oakland, and I'm also the primary care doctor within a federally qualified health center for over 100 kids with Down Syndrome. And uh, what I saw firsthand is how um, my patients with Down Syndrome who identified as Black or were primarily Spanish-speaking faced barriers in accessing healthcare at all levels, from primary care to subspecialty care, as well as educational services. Um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and uh, uh, our national awakening around um, what it means uh, to be Black in the United States, um, uh, I actually helped organize the town hall for our uh, professional organization, the Down Syndrome Medical Interest Group, uh, inviting different speakers from different backgrounds um, uh, to discuss um, issues around equity um, for our Down Syndrome community. And so when uh, 
Brian got his big grant. Uh, hopefully that made him think, hey, maybe Noemi has a, a thing or two to say about this uh, and, and could contribute uh, to this project. And then, Brian, I'll let, this, I'll let you speak as to how you got PQuery funding. Well, I'll just say I've been a fan of Dr. Spinazzi for a long time, and I've known her through our professional organization. And you know, we're a tight-knit community of the few physicians out there who run Down syndrome specialty clinics. We need to work together. And when you get a grant like this, which is to look at trends across the country, you cannot do it alone. You need to make sure that you have partners. And so with Dr. Spinazzi and all the other people who participated, we wanted to make sure we had geographic representation on this grant. Um, and that's what led us to make sure that we stitched together a real all-star cast of parents and clinicians. And it's important to mention that with this funding, it's not just researchers and clinicians doing the research, but hand in hand with parents, we did this and we wrote research papers together with parents who had this lived experience. And so it really was a togetherness project. Okay. So you get the funding and you do the research. How long does this all take? What, give me some timeline here. When did this all start? So from beginning to end, the research took two years, but it is not over. It'll never be sure. over. We've learned so many things, and now it's a matter of getting the word out about what we learned and continuing the dialogue. But the research was funded for two years. Okay, let's do that then. Let's start that here. Let's get, what was some of the research? What did you find? What is the dialogue that is important for us to be having as a community? So thank you for asking that. I, there were some common themes uh, that came out of this research that are worth uh, sharing, both with the medical community that needs to be more aware of barriers faced and how we can do a better job, but also to parents so that they can continue to self-advocate and advocate uh, for their kids. Um, the main thing that I believe so strongly in is that relationships built on trust are really crucial for establishing long-lasting medical care um, that it, that feels successful. And uh, um, in order for caregivers uh, to uh, trust the medical system, uh, which is imbued in structural racism and uh, in a history of uh, racism and disparities, uh, ourselves as the providers uh, need to earn that trust. Um, we need to be thoughtful about uh, the language uh, that we use and uh, um, what is maybe true lack of knowledge or perceived lack of knowledge, uh, both around Down syndrome as a condition, as well as uh, one's experience of uh, being Black in America and having Down syndrome, or um, uh, being a non-English speaker in America and having Down syndrome or having a child with Down syndrome. And I think that one big, big important piece of that that is a message for um, healthcare providers is um, to constantly strive for what we call cultural humility. So though you may have been taught that you can become competent in, in other people's culture, the truth is that um, We'll never be truly competent in anyone's culture but our very own, but we can strive to always learn more, more and ask a lot of questions um, to redress um, those imbalances that exist. Um, so for us as uh, doctors, it might start with, what has it been like for you? Um, 
to access care and access specialty care. Can you tell me a little bit more about the obstacles that you're facing? How can I be of support to you? What are some things that you have done that have worked really well? Ooh, can I share that with another family that may be encountering uh, that same difficulty? And I and what am I doing well? And what could I be doing better? How can I support you uh, better um, so that we can continue to build that trust that is so essential uh, for a therapeutic relationship? That's super, super helpful. I've never heard the term cultural humility before. Did that come up in this study or that's that's been around and I just haven't heard it? Um, it comes from research done at Children's Hospital Oakland about 20 years ago in a seminal, seminal paper that was published uh, uh, by um, mm-hmm. uh, okay. doctors here at Children's Hospital Oakland and something that um, being responsible for the medical education of a lot of residents, uh, I really um, harp on uh, because I think that um, it is crucial uh, to providing um uh, the kind of care that we're striving uh, to provide that respects uh, the differences that we all have in in our own um, cultures. Wow. It's really powerful stuff, Dr. Spinazzi. I, I would uh, also add to what Dr. Spinazzi said. When we ask parents to rank, who are your trusted messengers? When you turn to for healthcare information or information about research, Do you turn and do you trust first doctors? Do you trust hospitals? Do you trust the government? Do you trust your family? We ask them to rate all of those. And in both the families who identify as Black and families who identify as primarily Spanish-speaking, they're most trusted people when it comes to healthcare information are clinicians and hospital websites. And that is not to be taken for granted. So all of us who practice medicine We're given that opportunity to be trusted messengers, but it's not enough just to say, okay, we're good at it. We have to continue to respect it, cultivate it, and hone it. And one thing that the parents also drove home, Heather, and I'm sure you could appreciate it, is that moment when you were first given that diagnosis of Down syndrome. It is such a flashball memory, and parents could go back to the details of when those moments happened, and particularly for population within our community, our Down syndrome community, identifies Black or Spanish-speaking, how that diagnosis was delivered, whether with compassion or without compassion, set the tone for whether or not they continue to trust the system. And for those individuals who did not receive the diagnosis in a culturally competent, in an emotionally sensitive, in a compassionate way, it took a long time for them to learn to trust. And that is at the sacrifice of the care for their own loved ones with Down syndrome as they learn to trust the system. So there is a continuum of care and how we get it right at the beginning really sets the pace for a lifetime of care. Definitely. I'm thinking about what you just said, Dr. Scottco, and I'm thinking about how words matter so much. And then maybe we're using an interpreter, right? And so, First of all, how important it is to use an interpreter as opposed to fumbling through uh, uh, such an important discussion that will be a flashbulb memory for life uh, in whatever uh, broken Spanish someone might have for a parent themselves to advocate for themselves, to say, 
I really want an interpreter in this uh, in this visit in this encounter is so important. And as uh, members of Down syndrome community organizations and of the Down syndrome community, uh, we can support um, our community members who are not proficient English speaking by letting them know that they have a right to an interpreter in healthcare settings and empower them to request it, even though they feel like they understand the gist of what is being discussed. And and again, words are so powerful. And, and in the context of a healthcare system that we know has um, different outcomes uh, for our patients who are BIPOC compared to our white patients. Uh, what is being said can be interpreted under several lenses, right? Is this someone who has an ableist bias as they're giving me the diagnosis of Down syndrome? But is this also someone who has other biases and that's why they are having the conversation in this way? As a primary care doctor, there are many times where I have to set aside whatever I wanted to talk about to rehash the trauma, what it was like to hear that diagnosis and perhaps repeatedly be um, asked whether they were still thinking about termination and are you really, really sure that you want to have a kid with Down syndrome over and over again? And then parents be, you know, coming to us feeling like, wait a minute, do you actually care about my kid? Do you actually want my kid to be healthy and thrive? Or are you one of those people that told me I should have an abortion a million times, you know? Um, so what Brian just said is, is just so meaningful and it um, has such a long lasting impact on that trust relationship. Mm -hmm. I remember in episodes you've been on before, Dr. Spinazzi talking about earning trust. You've mentioned, I've, that's, I've heard you say that more than once. And that's like such an example of, of that earning trust. Um, yeah, it's an, it's, it is a very, as someone who's not in the medical space, I'm trying, I like, I'm trying to put myself in positions and put myself in remembering walking into spaces. And I'm a white woman. Um, and both of my children with Down syndrome are white. And so that's our experience as well, you know, and then I'm an adoptive mother, but that being able to trust your doctor is everything as you guys know. And such a wild thing that there's so many families who don't have that in the Down syndrome space. Yeah. And we are all embedded in a big system, right? And so it's not even mm -hmm. enough for the clinicians to get it right, but our whole system needs to get it right. And we know the sister system has, as we've learned from our focus groups, an inherent structural racism and ableism component to you. But just to kind of even break it down, um, uh, to give you an example that just happened a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Spinazzi talked about the importance of using interpreters, but sometimes we need to make sure that all of our community gets educated, including our interpreters. So I have a modicum amount of Spanish speaking skills, but not enough to be sufficient that my patients deserve. So they all get an interpreter. And I was giving a diagnosis of Down syndrome and discussing it to a new family. And I was describing Down syndrome and the interpreter I picked up in Spanish was using Mongolismo or the M word, right? That is a word that is pejorative and outdated. But if I didn't even have enough understanding in that language, I wouldn't even know to pick it up. And so what I thought I was conveying in a culturally sensitive way, my colleague who's a part of the same institution was using a, a word that he was trained on. And so you realize we need to train multiple people, et cetera. So everyone who comprises our healthcare system 
is part of making this a supportive experience. And so it's really working on both individual change, but also structural change as well. And families in our, our survey continue to remind us that it only takes one person to start to erode that trust in the entire system. And so we really do have to work at all these barriers. Okay, yeah, that awareness piece is so huge. That's being able to do a research project like this. What's something that was so surprising from the research that either of you can speak to? Was there something that, was there something that was like, whoa, I had really had not thought of that in that way? I could think of two things, and I'm sure Dr. Spinazzi, you'll, you'll, you'll think of others. One is that families who identify as being Black or primarily Spanish-speaking said the least trusted people that it comes to, in their opinion, when it comes to healthcare information or information about research are their own family members. And oftentimes they will tell us in focus groups, our family members either don't get it, they don't understand Down syndrome, they have different beliefs about Down syndrome, they tell us, oh, it's all going to be okay when it's not my child needs healthcare. And it was a real reminder that families play an important role in terms of psychosocial support and family support and love. But when it comes to information about healthcare, that trusted professional really is going to be uh, the healthcare professional. So that um, was not something that I thought would come through as great, but we need to think about the privileged position we're in in healthcare to, to get it right. Another thing that came through very strongly is families uh, who identify as Black prefer for their physician to be racially and ethnically concordant if possible with their own child. What does that mean? If your child is identified as Black, they would prefer to have a Black provider. But at the same time, they said it needs to be a provider who also either knows a lot about Down syndrome or is willing to learn. And the stark reality is we do not have enough clinicians of color to be able to meet all the needs to be able to match race concordance. So the question is, how do we establish non-racial and ethnic concordance clinicians to earn that trust and perhaps bridge that? And so families were very open. Sometimes you want the ideal, but you have to settle with the practical realities of what's available in your own community. I think that something that was surprising to me was one of the questions in the survey was how important is it for your loved one to be cared for by someone with a similar cultural or religious beliefs. And uh, um, as someone who for whom that is not a particularly important thing, I didn't expect for that to be um, as important of a piece. And also having been taught in school that you don't touch religion, just like you don't touch politics. <laughs> I was actually surprised to see uh, what a significant percentage, over half of respondents, identified that as being something either very important or somewhat important. And to Brian's piece about you might not be able to guarantee concordance, um, it has kind of freed me up to ask, you know, um, what is your, you know, what 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 does your spiritual community look like and uh, and how important is it to you and what is it a big source of support and um to ask more questions about that piece and uh, with permission of course um uh because i think that i've heard uh of uh statements like oh god wouldn't give a uh child with down syndrome 
to someone who wouldn't be ready to take care of them as something that some families really identify with as as something really true and other families feel quite offended by. Um, and so similarly to be, I've become more thoughtful about how I bring on the the spiritual piece and religious piece into the conversation because for some, it actually means so much and it is a huge piece of um, how they find support and how they find their, and, and how they uh, find meaning and, and, and where they draw a lot of their hope. Uh, well, for others, it, it might feel really intrusive and, and insensitive. Um, so it's given me some permission to at least bring it as a part of the conversation, um, asking open-ended questions and, and then learning more about that huge piece of a lot of my family's lives. So interesting. So results still, looking at results, when we're talking about bridging an equity gap, there's going to be discouragement found as well. I mean, it really starts from this idea that there's discouragement there. What was some things from the results that, that you discovered that were just, you found to be discouraging? One thing we heard loud and clear from primary care physicians is they really in earnest would like to do the right thing, but oftentimes they didn't have the resources and funding to be able to do it. So this comes up with primary care physicians who say, for example, I know I have this family that needs help in signing up for this resource. I know I'm working with a single mother who needs us to be able to connect the dots for her. But I don't have a social worker in my practice. I don't have a nurse practitioner in my practice. I'm a primary care doctor. I have 15 minutes. I have to move on to the next thing. I know I am failing her, but I don't have the resources to be able to implement it. And so as we think about individual change that we all need to continue to do, what is so frustrating is those individuals who do want to be the agents of change, who do um, work on their cultural competence and check their cultural humility. If the system hasn't changed, if we haven't provided the funding for them to have the social workers, to have the nurse practitioners, to have the resource advocates, then we really can't implement that change in full. In short, if making sure that everyone has equitable access to healthcare is important, then the money needs to follow the priorities. And right now we've heard loud and clear from the practicing physicians that in many pockets of America, despite best intentions, it's just not there. Hmm. How about you, Dr. Spinazzi? I agree. I think that part of the piece that is um, discouraging to me is that what we were observing with our eyes and hearing with our ears checks out in the data that many families approach medical appointments and interactions with the medical system expecting some differential treatment because of uh, their uh, racial background, because of the language they speak, um, and uh, uh, have experienced obstacles because of those factors, right? And when there is an obstacle, it helps to have a boost, right? It helps to have the additional help and resource to overcome the obstacle. And that is what I, um, I think is the moral injury that we feel as, as as doctors who mean the absolute best is that it to do what's right it it often comes at either sacrifice of one's own uh, time and um, sanity uh, or um, just accepting that the system is broken and until it's um, better supported um, 
we are in, in this difficult piece uh, where uh, we can't show up as much as uh, we would like. I do think that um, it can start there in that piece that sounds so bleak. Uh, we can say um, that at least as uh, providers, we can begin by acknowledging um, that raising a kid with Down syndrome is hard. And uh, uh, raising a kid with Down syndrome while also belonging to other marginalized communities is really hard. And, and, and having an openness to hearing more about what that experience is and an openness to uh, seeing how we might be able to assist as things come up uh, is the start. And then also being frank about uh, what we can actually act on and what we cannot act on. I live in the Bay Area. Housing is impossible to find in this area. I still want to hear about how for some families it's really hard to have stable housing and adequate housing. I'm still going to try to connect families with existing resources. I might not be able to fix their housing issue, but the sheer fact that I'm acknowledging that this is hard and it's making raising a kid with Down syndrome even harder is in itself um, uh, part of building that therapeutic relationship. Yeah. So uh, even on that note, so what, what do you do? How do you move forward? Where do, where's the dialogue need to be? How do people like me in the community? Um, why is it important for me to know these things? Let's talk about that. You know, Heather, the research has come to a close and the important effort is for the findings not to die with the end of the research. And so as a result, we have published it, um, together, uh, caregivers and clinicians and researchers. It's in the research literature. But we also need Down syndrome organization, nonprofit organizations. We also need all families out there to continue these dialogues. And it's not just to say, oh yeah, we're gonna think about it, but to actually organize time within your local communities to say, okay, of all these barriers they identify nationally, which of them hit home locally? And what can we start to do about it incrementally? As part of the project, we actually went on a tour, a virtual tour of the United States, and we hit about eight different cities to have these diversity dialogues where our diversity and inclusion specialist, Albert Pless, presented the results to families who identified as Black or Spanish-speaking and said, here's what we've learned. Does this resonate with you? And the conversations that started, sometimes for the first time in local communities, were really powerful. And now it's a matter of making sure those continue and we take step-by-step -step approaches to actually try to build facilitators rather than barriers. I think that at the individual level, um, every one of us uh, with any sort of privilege can amplify the voices of those who may be struggling to be heard, um, even if it's, uh, you know, uh, go showing up at an IEP, um, 
with uh, the parent of another kid with Down syndrome who may be struggling to have um, their voice heard um, and being a person of support and literally repeating whatever the parent has said uh, or offering to go to an appointment. Um, in, at the individual level, there's a lot that can be done. And then at the larger organizational levels, uh, just like it was thanks to uh, the Down syndrome community as a whole that the NIH significantly increased its research funding um, around uh, Down syndrome research. Similarly, if the community as a whole started getting really loud around issues of equity, um, hopefully that would lead to uh, adequate funding uh, being dedicated to redressing uh, these health inequities uh, that are uh, community members with Down syndrome uh, who are BIPOC and or don't speak English uh, face every day. So for our listeners who identify as BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, what would you say to them right now who are listening and thinking, yes, yes, I hear this. I feel seen. This is important to me. What do I do? What do I do now? Well, for one, keep telling us your stories, whether it's in in the room. Um, the stories stick with us. They uh, build our understanding of, of your experience and help us be better advocate and better doctors or better healthcare providers. Uh, don't hesitate uh, to tell us what you're experiencing and what you need for the system to work better for you. I would also say on a practical viewpoint, we have worked with caregivers to create something that we hope addresses several of those barriers. And it's called Down Syndrome Clinic to You or DSC2U. Um, some of the barriers we heard are we don't have transportation to be able to get to, to clinics. We don't have a clinician that is race concordant. We don't have equitable access to healthcare. Well, now we have addressed all of those with a new online platform called Down Syndrome Clinic to You. And the simple goal is to democratize healthcare. So no matter where you live in the world, whether you speak English or Spanish, if you go to our platform, you will get the same up-to-date instant recommendations that anyone would get if they were to go to a fancy Down syndrome clinic like run by Dr. Spinazzi or myself. Simply put, families go there, they enter any questions or concerns they have about their loved one with Down syndrome, and they will get customized, curated information for themselves and their primary care doctor. So that when they go to see their kid's primary care doctor, they will turn them into that expert on Down syndrome that they desired and that trusted messenger. And throughout this project, we had an opportunity to test the platform with families of color, and they really did find it was something that addressed many of their barriers. So was Down syndrome clinic to you, did that come because of this project? Was that created because of this project or already existed? The same funder funded it for $2 million for the Down syndrome community um, prior to this project. And then this funding was additional funding to figure out what are the barriers that our communities of color face, but how can we bring this new platform to address some of those barriers? So it was two grants from the same funding association that went to them. So we now have a solution, but it's a matter of getting the word out and getting people to use it. There is a cost to use Down Syndrome Clinic to you. It is operated behind our nonprofit hospital, low cost. We're working with insurances to make sure that it's covered by some insurances. But many Down Syndrome nonprofit organizations are now giving the gift of health to their members. 
So I tell their members to reach out to their local group. They may have coupons and access for you. Um, but we're trying again to democratize that healthcare. And I think that there's a piece that needs to be called out, which is that what we know is that there's a difference between what is said and what is heard. We know that, for example, about the differences in how pain is treated in white patients versus black patients, right? Two identical reports of pain may be treated very differently based on whether the provider sees a white person or a black person reporting that same amount of pain. But an online platform doesn't know what color your skin is, right? And will provide the exact same recommendation. <laughs> so I agree. I, I'm not saying stop going to the doctor and only do Down syndrome clinic to you. Please don't. Uh, I, it, would, it would be a real loss uh, to me to not see uh, all of my patients. Uh, but, but to have this objective way of uh, inputting health information and symptoms in a way that is secure, Right. Dr. Scott Koo and his team have worked very hard to keep this completely secure so that it can be trusted, even with such sensitive information as one's own health information and can provide recommendations that, that can then be shared uh, with one's own healthcare provider. And, it's, you know, sometimes I have families who say, you know, I've been asking for an ENT referral for months and the doctor keeps telling me, oh, it's going to be OK. Just wait, just wait or same with, I have a concern about autism and I've brought it up to my doctor again and again and again, and I'm told, oh, it's just Down syndrome. Oh, it's just Down syndrome. But if it comes from something as official as Down syndrome clinic to you, uh, developed by Mass General Hospital and Dr. Scottco with the Down syndrome program, that may be able to amplify the parent's voice. And boy, do I wish that weren't necessary. But it's part of the process of democratizing healthcare and improving yeah. health outcomes. Yeah, I I live in a place where my nearest Down syndrome clinic is two hours away. And whenever we've had you guys on or other people who run Down syndrome clinics or who are a part of them, it is like, how is this not something available to every single person with Down syndrome? But what a tool to have this Down syndrome clinic to you. Um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking like our ENT, yes, I'm. this is not getting too personal. I will be heading to the site is what I'm trying to say for some of that help. <laughs> I'm grateful for that. Uh, there's so much more here, I'm sure. But is there are there any more points that we've missed that we haven't touched on yet that it's important for, um, for myself and our listeners to hear and to know? I think it's important for all of us as a Down syndrome community to continue to do those check-ins. You know, on your board of directors, do you have representatives of all the communities that you serve? When you go and establish programs, do you make sure that you have your advertisements reflective of the diversity that you serve? That's a start, but that's only a start. It has to go deeper, as we've understood. It's building trust within the community. It's leaning on each other's shoulders. It's advocating for each other. It's making sure things are equitable. Those are the deeper things that require communities to invest in. And that means local nonprofit organizations investing in paid people to reach out to communities. It means our healthcare system investing in the type of structural resources we need. It means that research investing in making sure that recruitment efforts are equitable and also transparent. And so it really is from the individual to the structural change. We all have a role to play, and it's just a matter of one step at a time. I agree with that. And I would add uh, that we need 
community champions uh, to be an ongoing part of this work. So if among your listeners, this strikes a chord um, with a few or many, um, and you want to take this on within your community with your local Down syndrome organization to take a, or, or Down syndrome clinic to take a deeper look at um, how uh, uh, patients are being served and whether they're being served equitably. If you have the means uh, to fundraise uh, to create uh, more funding for uh, your local uh, Down syndrome clinic or Down syndrome organization to um, have to dedicate uh, uh, specific supports um, to address these big issues, um, then you know this. This research shows that it's needed and that you are needed. And um, it takes many voices uh, to create a chorus. But if we're all saying the same thing, um, then our message uh, will hopefully be heard uh, loud and clear and it will bring uh, meaningful change. I love it. When you're saying community champions and people are listening and right now they're like, that's me. What do they do now? Do they just like call you directly? Probably not, but what's the best, what's the best way then to take that step forward as a community champion? I, I would say go to Down Syndrome Clinic to you, check it out and spread the word. Make sure that people in your community know about it because the worst thing is we've created a resource that people could access and they don't know about it. And the next is I would say of the organizations that you're a part of, look around and ask, are we representative? And let's start to have those dialogues, those earnest dialogues, identify issues and then work towards that change. That's great. Super tangible. Yeah. Dr. Smarazzi, do you want to add anything? That if you have a big idea and you want to reach out to me, don't hesitate. <laughs> and if you have uh, funding to make things better, definitely don't hesitate to reach out to me. Uh, but I agree with Dr. Scottco. Uh, first of all, let's use resources that are currently available, like Down Syndrome Clinic to you, and let's support them uh, to make sure that they can continue to be around uh, to serve our community. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, change can happen faster at the local level. Uh, so within your community, as uh, Dr. Scottco said, uh, can you reach out to your local organization, either with introspection or ideas? Um, if you are white at your next event, look around. Do you see families that are non-white? Can you wonder why not? Uh, and uh, um, is that the beginning of a conversation? with your local organization uh, for how to be more inclusive. Uh, if you're non-white uh, and, and you're experiencing this, share with us, why is it that perhaps you're not feeling comfortable in, in these spaces that are meant to be inclusive? Um, and because many of us actually wanna hear it and, and wanna continue to uh, make it better. Um, uh, I think that these would be uh, great places to start. Um, I find that super helpful. I was going to say too, if you are white, go into it with cultural humility. I love that phrase. I'm going to be thinking about that so much. That's, that's so important having that humility piece. Okay. Dr. Scott Cohen, Dr. Spinazzi, thank you both so much. Thanks for the work that you do for the greater good for all of humanity, the work that you do for people with Down syndrome and our whole community as a mother to people with Down syndrome. Um, I feel so just humbled to get to have this conversation with you and so, so thankful 
for this work. It's just imperative for um for our collective humanity to feel to begin to feel some healing and and grow together and to see the change that I think all of us really are striving for for people with down syndrome and all people really. So very, very thankful. Um we will have listeners will have links to everything that you need to know in the show notes here. And that's it. Unless there's anything else that we missed. No, okay. You guys are both so articulate and well-spoken. It's just a, a real thrill. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for coming on and sharing this. Um, I appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you, Heather, for having me. Thank you both so much for being here and for sharing that. Listeners, if you want to hear more from Dr. Scott Co. or Dr. Spinazzi, I'm going to list off these episodes. We'll have them linked in our show notes as well. But they've been on before. Episode 63 was Health and Down Syndrome with Dr. Spinazzi. Episode 74, Building Brain Power in People with Down Syndrome with Dr. Scott Co. Episode 77, Back to School or Back to the Screen. This was all about COVID and the upcoming school year with Dr. Spinazzi. Episode 109, let's talk about COVID and the vaccine with Dr. Spinazzi. And episode 129, how to keep your kid with Down syndrome healthy while traveling was also with Dr. Spinazzi. She was our go-to doctor during all of the COVID land things. Not that that's completely gone away, but those first couple years for sure. So you can check out those episodes to learn more about both Dr. Scott Co. and Dr. Spinazzi. All right, we're going to wrap it up now. Thank you, Josh Avis, for editing this episode and Ashley Fracolasi for also producing and managing our social media account. If this is an episode that you enjoyed, share it with family and friends. This is a great one to share with your clinician, to share with a Down syndrome organization close by, to share with someone you know who has lots of funding to put towards issues like this. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the luckyfewpodcast.com for show notes and all the things we talked about today. Be sure to follow on social media over at the lucky few pod and listener. You are slaying it. We love you so much here at the podcast. We're here cheering you on always. And we can't wait to be together for another episode next week. 